All right, folks, grab your Bibles. We're going to read uh, almost all of the first chapter of Jonah. We're still in the first chapter. We'll, we'll branch over into chapter two next week, but uh, we'll get through most of uh, the first chapter here today. Grab your Bibles, turn to the book of Jonah. Uh, if you're going to use our pew Bible underneath the middle aisle of seats, there's uh, a couple Bibles stacked underneath, underneath every chair. Uh, we'll be on page 502. Jonah, we're going to start in uh, verse 4 and read all the way through verse 16. You guys ready? I can't tell if y'all are ready or not. Faisal's ready. All right. Let's read together. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you've done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then he said to them, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done it as you please. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for the day, for the gathering of your church, for those uh, churches who are meeting like us here in Kingstown. And um, God, we need your grace today. Uh, I'm, I'm reminded that as a preacher standing up before these people, that it's through the folly of preaching that you save souls. And so, Lord God, would you do what only you can do? Would you open minds and hearts to receive your word today? Would you say things to us that challenge us and that um, perhaps even rebukes us of our notions of who you are and how you, um, you know, how you want us to come after you. Uh, but more importantly, Lord God, through the story of Jonah, we pray that, um, that we would see what you've called us to. Um, give us ears to hear and eyes to see. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. And Amen. So Jonah made a mistake of believing that he could run from God. And last week we discussed uh, two perspectives, two views of, of how, you know, people run from God. Uh, from a human viewpoint, uh, we said that we make unwise decisions. We just do things that are kind of, you know, D-U-M-B, dumb. Um, and that manifests in all kinds of ways. Some people actually think that they can actually run from God. And we talked about that, you know, from you can go to the ends of the earth and, and really scripture testifies that God is going, he's going to be there. Sometimes we surround ourselves with people who are running as well. And and so instead of um, surrounding yourself with people who are going to say things that you need to hear and encourage you to do things that you need to do, we we gather around people who will tell us, you know, anything. And they'll let us say whatever we want to say and do whatever we want to do. But there's a different perspective. There's a human perspective, but there's there's a divine perspective. And... From God's perspective, he is active as well when we run. When we run from God, God, um, he pursues us. God is always pursuing you, even when you don't think he is. And oftentimes in God's pursuit, he'll send 
a storm. That's what he did for Jonah. God is looking at the totality of our lives and in his purposes for us and for his world, God will really bring situations, circumstances, encounters with people, and sometimes both health and emotional issues to show you, um, to show you who you're trusting in. And primarily what we find is um, we're trusting in ourselves and not in, in God. Really, when we're, I mean, when life gets hard, oftentimes we trust any and everything but God. And so God sends a storm to expose the fact that, that we're putting our faith in those things instead of putting our faith in him. And so this week, week three of our series, we're going to take a look at the sailors. And that's going to be the, the focus of, uh, of our attention this morning as we uh, just uh, wrestle with these last few words in chapter one. You know, the sailors are interesting characters here, and we could very easily just bypass, you know, just look at them as, as innocent bystanders in this story. And, and in some ways, they are. They are, you know, they're being, they're experiencing a storm because Jonah is on the boat primarily. But what I want to present to you this morning, at least get you to see, is these sailors in many ways represent all of us. They, they represent all of our heartfelt longings and our desires for spirituality. And we firstly see some of this in what Paul has written in the New Testament. Here's one place that Paul writes about um, all of our longings and desires for spirituality. Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and the first part of verse, verse 20. Paul says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, plain to all of us who live on the earth, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So Paul is saying all of us, we look at nature, trees, uh, the mountains, the rocks, the oceans, and we attribute that. I mean, this this just couldn't have happened by itself. There is a creator, there's a designer behind all of this and how our world works. It had to have come from an intelligent design. Scripture says this, it, it, creation bears witness that there is a God. Paul doesn't stop there in Romans. He actually continues with this thought. Uh, we're not going to show you the, the scriptures. The proof text here is Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. But here's what Paul unveils in Romans chapter 2. He says, um, it's not just internally. We don't just have an internal witness that there is a God. But I'm sorry, an external witness, but internally within all of us, our consciousness also tell us that there is a God. There's something within us that tells us that if I do this, this is right. If I do that, it's, it's probably wrong for me to do it. It's intuitive. It's within us. We know somehow within ourselves that there is a God. And there is a desire in every human being to be connected to that. We have a desire. I'll call it. We have a desire for worship. That's what Paul is unfolding here in Romans. And so human beings are very spiritual people. What I want to do firstly this morning before we jump in the text of, of Jonah is, is look at this idea, unfold this idea um, um, that we'll see in Jonah um, of the, the problem of, of us being spiritual people and how, what that leads us to. And I'm going to go to the book of Acts to do that. Acts chapter 17, verses 22 to 28 is one of my favorite passages in Scripture. If you've been here only a, a couple months, um, I, I mean, I probably, every other, every other sermon I preach, I go back to Acts chapter 17 because it tells us a lot about who we are as people and how we worship. This is what Paul says in, uh, in Acts chapter 17, verses 22 through 28. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription. To the unknown God, to the unknown God uh, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything uh, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. 
Yet he's actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own prophets have said, for we indeed his offspring. I'll stop right there. This is Paul is on his second missionary journey, just going and, and visiting some of the the, the churches, the cities that he had um, initially gone to see and, and started um, worship gatherings, churches. And he comes, uh, he's get, he, gets, he gets chased out of, a, out of two different places and then happens upon Athens. And as he's going into Athens, what alerts him is all these statues, statues to this God and this God and this God. The Romans had, I mean, they had a God on every corner for uh, for all the the ways that they worshiped. And really, these gods represented the sun and the moon and the earth and sex and all these things that they, the, the Romans thought if they had a god that they would worship, then all these areas of their lives, if they worship that god, it would give them it would give them favor. And Paul happens upon a statue that says to an unknown god. And here he unveils for them, you know what? You're worshiping a god that you don't know, and you've erected a statue to him. Well, let me tell you who this god is. And of course, as he goes on through the passage, he starts talking about about Jesus, the man that was crucified, that actually was incarnated as God. But principally, what Paul is saying here is every human being has a desire to worship. We have a we have a desire to be a part of something that's bigger than ourselves. And the way we worship is very different for all of us, but it's in all of us. And the, the, really, um, the, you can see it in creation. You can see it primarily in the, the way, you know, think about this. Um, any of y'all have pets? Any of y'all have some kind of a pet? Um, I, I had a duck when I was a kid. He ran away. I had about seven hamsters. All my hamsters died. Don't tell my daughter because she wants a hamster right now. Uh, I, I killed them. Um, but here's the deal with, with animals. Animals... Uh, uh, Larissa and I, when we got married, lived in Fayetteville in a little condo. Uh, I started, to pl- I started uh, going to the field a lot, field training exercises, and so she bought a dog, and we got a, a dog named Enzo. Enzo was named after my wife's favorite pair of shoes, Enzo. Uh, do they still have those? I don't know. Enzo was a Cocker Spaniel. Uh, he, was, he was the most handsome dog in the complex, um, and he knew it. Enzo was a diva, though. He was a, a diva, boy dog. Uh, this, is what, this was Enzo's life. He liked to he liked to be around us, like to sit in our lap, like to sleep on our bed. He didn't want to be in his cage. Um, he liked to eat eucanuba, eucanuba food. Is that eucanuba? Right. It's been a long time since I had a pet. Um, he liked to um, you know do dog things, like to go outside and pee on his favorite tree. But Enzo never he never thought about the meaning of his life beyond that. You know, I don't remember Enzo ever coming to me and saying, well, what is, why am I here in this world? He didn't do that. But don't, but don't we do that? I mean, that, that's the difference between us and our worship and the rest of the created world. We have, we're just inquisitive. Why am I here? Why am I doing what I'm doing? What's my purpose on the world? Where, where is it going to? We ask those kind of questions, and this is part of our worship. But the, the problem with us and our worship is that we worship everything but God. And, and so here's a, a technical definition of worship. This is Jeff's definition of worship. Worship is what you reverence. It's, it's what, it, what, it's what give, you give yourself to. It's, it's what you put your head into, your heart into, what you give your time into. And our problem as human beings is that we're not worshiping. All of us are worshiping, whether you're religious or not. But our problem is primarily we're worshiping the wrong thing, the wrong God. And if we're even if we're worshiping the right God, we're usually worshiping him in the wrong way. You can see this if if you go overseas. For those of you that are military here or that you travel, you've been overseas. You've seen this this weird kind of worship where many third world countries. I mean, they actually worship rocks and the sun and animals. And and we think that's a primitive form of worship, don't we? Don't judge too quickly because we're worshipers just the same. We have a more dignified, civilized type of worship. In fact, one of the biggest worship events that goes on, goes on across our country will happen in about starting like two hours. We're going to crowd by the thousands into huge stadiums. Those are our temples. We'll get our garb on. Some people will get painted up and then the gods come out. 
and the guys are, are, are dressed in these uniforms with pads on and they got tight pants on and then they start going against each other. And, and when our guys are doing well, we stand up and we cheer. Yeah. And when they don't, then we go pick another God and we call that football. That's how we worship. And if you don't worship in that way, worship a sport of some sort, and, and, and create these demigods of, of just superior human athletes, then we will, we will make a god of our work. We'll work, we'll overwork, and we'll, I mean, we'll just put all of our energy into being successful and getting this title or making this amount of money. And if it's not your work, then you'll worship a relationship. And so you will consume yourself with a person such that if they don't smile at you or say something nice to you, then I mean, your whole day is wrecked because this person hasn't acknowledged you. And if you don't make uh, a sport or your work or a person your God, if you don't worship them, then perhaps you might worship a hobby. You know, we can put all of our time and effort into all kinds of things. You know, hobbies is, is that is it's recreation. It's, it's recreating the time, your time outside of your labor, and it's not wrong to do any of those things. And so don't hear me as, a, as, as challenging you in those parts of your life. But what I'm saying is we worship. We have a dignified form of worship. And so it's worship, but it doesn't look like worship. In many ways, uh, we hide our need for God through civilized things that really are worship. And our need for God, our desire for meaning is deep in us. But let me tell you what brings out our true worship. Crisis. Ever been in a crisis and had some stuff come out in you that you didn't re- you didn't remember, didn't know was in you? My wife brings it up all the time. Perhaps your spouse does that for you too, or if you're a kid, perhaps your parents reminds you, well, I don't like your character right now. And what what's happening there is it's what you're worshiping is coming out, and crisis does that. What happens when you squeeze a lemon? The stuff comes out, right? The pulp and the juice, it comes out. When life squeezes us, who we are at the base of our lives comes out. I, you know, way back, some of you weren't even born here, but 9-11 was an example of this. Remember how the country felt squeezed? I mean, the, the tragedy of 9-11, I mean, we felt violated and our true selves came out. And I, you know, this is a different type of situation, but I would say the Ebola crisis right now, I mean, it has everybody on on edge. It's been on the news. uh, It's been on the news four weeks straight as the leading leading item in the nightly news. It's on the newspaper. It's in the it's in the the radio talk shows. Uh, If you're a parent and your kid comes home with a little sniffle, Zoe came home with a little cough, and you know, and I, you know, I'm not putting too much into this, but for my, what's, the, what's the first thing I'm thinking about? Dang, I mean, I hope it's not Ebola. <laughs> Seriously, come on, don't tell me y'all, <laughs> y'all haven't experienced that. It's got everybody on edge. And this is what's happening with these sailors. Let's look at verse four through six. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship in the sea to lighten it up for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep, snoring. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not that we may not perish. Um. This was a this was a horrific storm. I don't even know if there's you've never seen a movie. We've never been in a storm quite like this one. I've been in uh, hurricanes in North Carolina. I've lived through tornadoes in North Carolina um, and Kansas. Kansas has some hellacious tornadoes. It's just wild there. And uh, I've been uh, in a. Uh, an almost airplane crash. That, that, this was my deployment from hell. This is a good story. I don't have time to tell you about it, but it was like, you know, you've seen on TV those, um, you know, m- making fun of airplanes crashing. The, the, the oxygen masses are falling down from the, from the ceiling and people are like, ah, ha, ha. it was, it was, it was a plane full of soldiers. I'm, it's 2003. I'm going to war in Iraq and our plane makes a crash landing on the island of Crete, in the middle of the Mediterranean. 
it was deployment from hell, and it didn't, I mean, it was, I was like going to war, and it was hell before I even got there. That's another, another story for another day. We, we've not experienced a storm like this. We, we have not. None of us have. And the soldiers think they're going to die. I mean, this is it for them. And so in verse 6, they, they cry out to God, and the captain coming to Jonah is asking him to, to pray. And, and in this, we get a peek into his soul. Not, not Jonah's soul, the, the captain's soul. The wording here leads us to believe that the sailors were praying to their own gods, and unfortunately, their gods weren't responding to them. And then, of course, later in the chapter, we're going to get to it, verse 14, they, they then start praying to Jonah's God, to the, the God of the Hebrews. But what's evident here as, as we look at this, just this story unfolding, is that they were talking to a God they didn't trust. They, they, these soldiers had likely, I mean, they were pagans, they weren't Christians, and they all came, these soldiers all came from different places. They probably weren't all, you know, homogenous, and they all had different gods, and they're calling out to their different gods. And so the, so the, the captain's coming to Jonah and say, I mean, what God do you serve? Ours aren't working. Let's, let's use yours. They, they did not have a trust for their God to deliver them from the situation they were in. They didn't believe that God loved them enough to get them through the storm. They didn't believe their God um, what would come to their aid. They didn't believe that when they needed their God, he was going to show up. And so he's like, if you got a God, bring him out because ours ain't working. I mean, they believe that they were on their own. And, you know, if I'm honest, I'll say this is just like us. This is just like me in many situations of of my life, if I'm honest, I'll admit that I see myself all the time I mean, in this natural bent of our of our hearts is to believe that, you know, I know God is there, but sometimes it's in me not to believe that he's really going to help me when I need him to come through like, God, I need you right now. And sometimes that's like, oh, I don't, you know, can I call on God like that? And and here's the, here's the deal. Our, the heart reflex that we have is to know that God wants to control our lives. God, God does want to control our lives. But here's what we think. We think if God gets control, that's the end of my life. That's the end of my joy. That's the end of my happiness. That's the end of me doing what I want to do. God's in charge. Life's going to be boring. I don't get to, I don't get to have my heart's desire. That's, that's our thinking. We know that God is in charge and he, he wants us to follow him, but somehow intuitively we know we don't want to give him control of our lives. And and really, this is not a new story. We, when we experience that, not wanting to give up completely to God, this is, I mean, this has happened from, from the very beginning. Uh, Satan has been doing this to, to humankind from the very beginning. His conversation uh, to us is that God is not trustworthy. Let's look at Genesis chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. It's on page 2 of your, your pew Bible. But the serpent said to the woman, You'll not surely die. So before this, um, it, I mean, it's, it's kind of an abrupt scene. God made the world in Genesis chapter one. Then he comes back and he unfolds the, the, the creation of man and woman in the image and likeness of God. And then in chapter three, just like we're shoved into this scene with with the serpent, um, you know, who has who's possessed by Satan and he just walks up on the woman. We don't know if they're at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or or what, but it's seemingly they're close to it. And he just starts talking, talking to Eve. I mean, God, I mean, God's he's not, you're not going to die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And this was the first lie. This was the very first lie that we have record of. Uh, right here recorded in the Bible. And Satan is basically saying, God is holding out on you, Adam and Eve. He doesn't really understand your situation. You should just be afraid of him. He, he's, not, he's not for your best interest right now. And, and how many times have you ever wrestled with these kind of same thoughts in your head and, and in your heart that God doesn't have your best interest um, at, at that time? And, you know, this is Satan's tool for us to orient it toward us. He's lying to us. And if we're not careful, we'll become afraid of God. I think the you know, what happened immediately after this, Adam and Eve had this immediate fear. They were afraid of God. They went and hid. And if we 
are like them, we'll do the same thing. The Bible doesn't tell us to be afraid of God. It tells us, it welcomes us to experience a, a reverence for God such that we would want to surrender our lives to him. So how do we know if we're coming to God in this way? How do we know if we're afraid of God? And I would say this, if you're afraid of God, you, you don't, I mean, you don't worship, you bargain with him. If you're afraid of God, you don't pray, you negotiate. In other words, you're not in a real relationship with God. You just think he's something that you, I mean, he's a, a, see, he's something you go to when you need something to happen, when you need stuff. You don't trust him uh, because you don't think he's there for you. And so this is the question we need to ask ourselves. Do we really trust God? These, these sailors, this captain in particular, they didn't trust God. They didn't trust their own God. They had not yet trusted Jonah's God. They just wanted that God to do something for them, get them out of a tough spot. They were stuck, did everything they could to do, tossing stuff over the boat, and they were stuck, and they needed God to come through, a God, any God to come through. And at that moment, they did not trust God. And this this says something to us about how we pray. I mean, when you pray, when you close your eyes and you're going to you know, give God a couple minutes of your time, I mean, what do you think about? What do you see? What's your impression? Uh, you know, if you have imagination and you're imagining what God looks like and how he's responding to the words that you're saying to him, what does his face look like? Does he have a smile on his face? Is it a frown? Is it a scowl? He's like, ah, don't talk to me. I mean, what do you, what do you view of God when, he, when you're coming to him? Is it fear-based or is it faith-based? If it's fear-based, you only get um, you only get spiritual when crises happen. The only time you get close to God is, is when something is not really going well. You talk to God because you want to get something from him. And, and honestly, we'll, we'll do anything in some moments to, to get God to move, to do something. You know, I've caught myself in a car and, and I'm like, I, this is how I am. I drive. I fill my car up with gas and I drive my car until it gets like past E like in a red zone beyond that, because I want to get all of my money out before I put more gas in. It's crazy, I know. Help me. Help me, Lord. <laughs> but, you know, have you been in your car, and you're like in a, it's like in one of those, you're in traffic on the, on the beltway. God, help us. And it's like, I'm not going to make it. Like, Lord Jesus, just get me to the exit so I can get out. Have you ever done that? Or how about this? I mean, it's like you're not just one of those, but you're in like a really tough spot. Like something has happened and gosh, I'm like stuck. Jesus, God of the world, help me. If you get me out of this spot, I'll do dot, dot, dot. You fill in the blank of what you said in those moments. You know, you've done it. I'm looking at y'all. I know some of you. We do that. We do that. Um, I mean, (laughs) We do that. I'm thinking of other things I've said. I can't do that. Back to Jonah. These, these soldiers really had no clue as to who their true God was. They're, I mean, they're crying out in fear. And where's Jonah in all this? I mean, where is he? We're told that he's in a different level of the ship and he's sleeping. Okay, so much like the, the sailors in this, in this narrative, at least at this point, are representing um, humanity um, searching for spirituality. Right here, Jonah is a picture of the church, and it's not a pretty picture. The sailors were, were, were broken humanity, trying to, you know, worshiping anything that came about. The, the Jonah, he's a picture of the church, broke and asleep. And unfortunately, this is an accurate picture of the church sometimes. And the, the, the challenging part is we are Jonah. We are Jonah here. Jonah was was running. He didn't give a care to the world about him. And he goes to sleep. And and look what happens next in verse six. Uh, In a sense, the captain rebukes Jonah. And the world rebukes the church oftentimes. Yeah, I mean, you've seen it in Facebook, on the news, news media of, of celebrity people who are in ministry that say things that they should not do things that they should not. And the church, I mean, the world hears about it and the world kind of rebukes the church about it. You've seen not so famous people who profess to be Christians who just, I mean, they just do bad stuff. They embezzle. They, they try to get people caught up in schemes. And 
It happens all around us. And when it does happen, I think the world looks in and they say, it's like, I thought these church people were supposed to be different. I thought when you start worshiping God and, you know, going to church and stuff, it made you into a, a different person. And they're looking at us like hypocrites. It's like if you're a Christian and you're like doing that, I mean, I don't want any part of that. It's like uh, I can do battle by myself. Right. I mean, that's a that's a Tyler Perry movie. Y'all have seen that one, Medea. Um, And so the captain comes to Jonah and he rebukes him really as a hypocrite. And he gets right to the heart of where Jonah is. And so in verse six, he says, so captain came and said, what do you what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise and call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may perish. What do you what do you mean? You sleep with the, the, the captain basically says, I mean, how in the world can you sleep right now? Don't you know what's going on around you? We are we are all going to die. And because you're on a boat, you're going to going to die too. do something if you can. And so Jonah is is completely unaware of the needs of the people that are around him. And I think if we put this in perspective, Jonah should have had a little more care considering who he was. Jonah was a prophet commissioned by God to bring God's truth to people far away from him. Jonah is supposed to be telling people about the God that loves them and how God's way is the best way. And what's Jonah doing? Jonah's sleeping. Jonah has no clue as to the other lives that are on this ship. And considering that Jonah is running from God, Jonah don't even, I mean, he doesn't even care. And this is, this is not a, an exact parallel, but really this is akin to us sometimes when, when we just ignore those people who are around us, that, that God sovereignly puts in our path in the normal parts of our life. If you're in the, uh, the corporate world, it's like going to your office space having a cubicle somewhere and not ever getting to know the person that's in the cubicle beside you. If you're a student in school, it's like, you know, you got this certain path that you walk from your dorm or wherever you're living to get to your class. And you see the same person every day that you go to this class or you may perhaps sit beside that same person and never saying anything to them, not even getting to know their name. It's like living in a a neighborhood. And having a neighbor and not ever getting to know anything, not even a name about that person. And the, the truth is, sometimes we do that. I mean, we have all these people in our lives in, in various ways, and we have some habitual things that happen. And, and sometimes we don't even have, we don't even go outside of ourselves to get to know those people. And this is Jonah, and this is us. The other thing the captain says is, arise, call out to your God. Jonah was not bringing his faith to bear on this situation. That's basically what the the captain was saying. Hey, dude, if you got a God, break him out. We need him right now because we're perishing. And I would tell you that the modern concept of religion as you don't bring your religion into the public eye. It's a private matter, at least until there's a crisis. Um, 9-11 hit. And I don't know if you noticed it, for those of you that are old enough to remember it, but on the news, in the newspaper, Definitely in our communities, everybody was praying about, I mean, they were trying to make sense of what was going on in our world as all of us felt violated by this this attack that came from the outside. And the same thing happens when any of us are in crisis. The world forgets their own, I mean, even the atheists start praying when we're in crisis, don't they? And so the sailors are crying out to God trying to make sense of their world. They're coming to Jonah. And I would, I would contend to you that the people in, in your sphere of influence, the people that you see that are in your life in various ways, in, in, in some ways, maybe not overtly, they're crying out. They're crying out to make sense of the world that they live in. They're crying out to understand the situations that they're in. They're crying out for someone, perhaps like you, to just listen to them. They're crying out for somebody to just care just a little bit about them, crying out for someone to sit down and just listen to them and not judge them. And I know this sounds kind of simplistic, but I mean, don't you feel like that sometimes, too? Don't you just want somebody to, I mean, just hang out with you and and listen to you and kind of feel out where you are? And, And it definitely if you're in a situation, a tough situation in life, don't you want somebody to come alongside you and just care 
a little bit. I, I kind of think that's what this, this captain was doing with Jonah at this moment. And I think that happens. There's, there's an opportunity for that to happen in your life and mine every single day. We get it. We, there's opportunities for us to bring our faith to bear in this world. And, and this is the thing. It doesn't even require you to be vocal sometimes. It just requires you to, to, to guard some of your time and, and care a little bit. Open your ears and listen. There's a passage in the New Testament that sort of gets at the same idea. James chapter 2 says this. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things they needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is, is dead. We are... Um, one of the things that we're trying to get a handle on is our church in our church is how to serve our community. You know, how to how to get our hands dirty with the things that are going on, the, the actual needs of our community right here in Kingstown, Greater Alexandria. And then in the places where all you all live, Falls Church, Vienna, Annandale, Woodbridge and Springfield, the surrounding area, Lord, and all those places. And, uh, you know, there, there is genuine need out there. And I'll just tell you, this is not part of my sermon. I'm just telling you because I, I brought it up. I got to finish the thought. Um, you know, principally, the way we want to do that is through our community groups. So for those of you in a community group, we want to uh, participate in things that are going on in our neighborhoods and our communities and, and just be the church by, by participating, not creating our own thing and then inviting people to it, but do the things that are already Going on, and there's a lot of things going on here in D.C. We don't have to make anything up and then invite people to it. The other thing would be that we would be, we would see ourselves on mission for God right where he's planted us, where we work, where we recreate, where we live, amongst the people that he's like normally putting in our path. And as you've seen unfold over the last few months, um, one of the ways that we're trying to get a foothold of just serving the needs is to find out what you're interested in. One of those things is, uh, you know, someone in the community, in our, in our congregation was doing stuff at Central Union Mission in D.C. It's a homeless agency, one of the biggest in the area. And then we decided to partner with them financially. Every quarter we give them $200. And then um, as we as we have opportunity, we, t- we take people there and serve, serve food, clean up. I mean, just mediocre kind of stuff. And then Amy Baumgartner, who's not here today, um, had been, I mean, a couple years had been just volunteering with this, um, with uh, the the uh, uh, Bethel House, which is uh, uh, a physical abuse, sexual abuse center. And then, you know, just because she's involved in that and, um, and just has been serving our community in that capacity, uh, we're sowing into that as well. And so, if you have, you know, just as an aside, if you have something that you are intimately involved in, that you're sowing into, serving our community and, and bringing a lot of the gospel in that, then we would want to partner with you and, and see how our church can be a part of that. All right. So I'm back to my sermon now. Um, we want, you know, we're trying to get a, just a handle on uh, the needs in our community, orphans uh, that need to be adopted, individuals and families in crisis, the poor. And the reason why I'm thinking about this is that time. I mean, yesterday, Starbucks broke up the Red Cup, right? Some of y'all got it in your hand. The Red Cup, the Red, y'all know, don't act like you don't know what I'm talking about. The Red Christmas Cup. And it just, it's like automatic. During this time of year, we remember it's, it's time to give. We see charities starting to come on TV. Um, the, the man with the, with the, with the bell, um, for the Salvation Army is going to be in front of the grocery stores in a couple of weeks, um, collecting donations for, for their, for their charity. And I mean, you, you pass homeless people on the side. Of, I mean, just, we, we're reminded by, by the time of year that we're in, but also by the things going on around us, there's great need in our community. Okay. And it's, it's kind of in us to feel guilty if we don't do something. And we should do something. The, the, the truth is, as poor as any, we're an affluent congregation, so I mean, I'm not talking about us. As poor as anybody is in our country, there are people who are far, far worse off in, in lands, nations outside of the United States. Even our poorest people are, are affluent here in the United States compared to everybody else around the world. Keep that thought in mind and, and segue into this kind of logic. 
What, um, what about the people that are around you? What about the people who are poor that are around you? Those who are poor in spirit. I mean, do you know anybody that they're, they're spiritually poor? They have no, I mean, they're completely disconnected from God. What about those people who, who are around you that are relationally poor? Do you know anybody that over and over, I mean, they, just, they can't even keep a relationship. They, I mean, they make a friend, break up. They, they make a, a, an, an intimate relationship and they, they break up. They, they have this, this ongoing issue in their life of, of being relationally poor. Do you know anybody that's emotionally poor? They're just all over the map with their emotions, highs and lows, depression, I mean, and multiple, multiple, just, um, Transitions of that during a day. And so could it be that maybe God would use someone like you to, I mean, just to intervene, to be there on the spot, to, you know, to be the person in the moment, to help a person that's in a predicament. Imagine God putting you on a boat to live your life and he's not actually doing anything special, but just be you on the boat and then you have opportunities to mingle, to interact with, to engage with people who are in various stages of poverty, emotionally, relationally, spiritually, and you are there to do something ever so small to help them. And so the captain is saying, Jonah, if you got a God, call out to him, have him do something. If your God is real, please do something. And and we're going to get into this more in chapter four. But here's Jonah's problem. Jonah was self-righteous. Jonah did not want to do. He thought he was above the thing that God tasked him to do. God sent Jonah to to speak a word of rebuke to the, the, the nastiest, most wicked nation on the earth at that time, the Assyrians. And he sent him to the capital of Assyria, uh, Nineveh. And Jonah just didn't want to go there. Jonah was called to go minister to a bunch of pagans. Jonah was, uh, uh, he ends up on a boat with these sailors. And then God appoints a fish. And that fish swallows Jonah until he says, uncle. Right? Okay? And so at the point where Jonah wanted to repent, the fish sovereignly spits Jonah up um, on land so that Jonah could have a second chance to do the thing that he didn't want to do in the first place. And he basically goes and tells them to repent, and they repent. We'll hear more about that in future weeks. And this is what I take, I take out of that. You know, Jonah, Jonah had a bad attitude through this whole thing. We'll find out. Even in chapter 2 and chapter 3, where it seems like Jonah was obedient to God, he really was still disobedient in his attitude. And here's the thing in your life. I, you know, I don't like to say that we fail God. There, there's some things that we do that can just like, yeah, you messed it, you messed it up. But here's what God does for us, and we see this in Jonah's life. He brings about tests. Every day, often, oftentimes, God brings tests your way. And if you don't pass the test, God just gives you another opportunity to take the test. And, and, I mean, that's what's happening in your life. If you don't pass God's test, he gives you another opportunity to pass the test. And we'll see this come out in Jonah. And God's not doing that to chastise you. God is more than just, God is after more than just your obedience. God wants to change your character from the inside out. And so here's my, here's my challenge for you. Jonah was self-righteous. He had forgotten he had forgotten his life before he knew God. And perhaps, I mean, do you remember how you were like, what you were like, what you were doing before Jesus perhaps came in and made you aware of him by his spirit and changed you? Can you remember those days? Because how you were then and there is, is perhaps how the people are that are around your life who don't know God. And God wants you to remember that in hopes that it will provoke you to pursue him more so that you might be a a source of light in these people's lives. And the thing is, when we're running from God, like Jonah was running from God, um, we run away from the very people that God has sent us to. And that's what Jonah was doing. God sent Jonah to the Ninevites, and he was running away from the very people that God intended him to go to. And this is the truth. We're not all called to be prophets, but we are all sent. God has not called you to be a prophet, but he has He has brought you to himself to send you, not to a far off land to do anything else as a missionary. He wants you to be a missionary right here, right where you are.
in the midst of all that you have on going in life. All right. So we only cover like two verses, two verses. We got the rest of chapter one to cover. All right. I'm going to give it to you in five minutes. You guys got five more minutes? You have no choice. All right. So here's the rest of this passage. The narrative leads us to the pinnacle of, of, of chapter one, which is verse 14. This is what verse 14 says. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you. O Lord, you have done it as you please. So the sailors are in crisis and they're calling out to their individual pagan gods. And they discover that Jonah and his God are the cause of the storm. And in this verse right here, verse 14, for the first time, the sailors call out to to Jonah's God. They use the Hebrew name Yahweh, which is a covenant name of God. So something has transpired in the in the sailors lives that they are not. They're recognizing that their God is not doing the trick. And they have seen something in Jonah's God that that broadens their horizon, that this God that Jonah is serving is righteous and he's true. He is the God that's over the storm and only he is going to get us out of this tight spot that we're in. You know, there's mixed opinions as to whether these sailors sailors actually come to faith. And I won't tell you what I think. I mean, you can read it and you decide on your own. It doesn't really matter. Um, but as you look at this passage closely, uh, th- I mean, two things are, 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 are prevalent. Firstly, the sailors are praying to, to Jonah's God, Yahweh, firstly, that they won't perish. That, I mean, they're, they're scared, they're in crisis, and they're just like, help me. Okay, you've done that before? Everybody prays, right? We shouldn't be sh- Everybody prays, even if you don't believe in God. That's the first thing they're doing. Secondly, Jonah had just told them that the way to end this storm is to call out to my God, pick me up, throw me over. In verse 15, he says that throw, just hurl me into the sea and the sea and the, and the storm will stop. And so what, what are they doing? It's like, Lord, don't hold this to our account because we are getting ready to throw this dude over this boat. Here's some takeaways. Firstly, the sailors recognize the absolute sovereignty of God. This, this is what happens in the the sailors go from worshiping pagan gods to worshiping Yahweh. And the principal thing that happens in their life is they recognize the sovereignty of God over their situation. God is a God that does as he pleases. I have a couple of verses here. Um, this is an important phrase, that God is a God that does as he pleases. Write this down. We're not going to look at the verses. Isaiah 45, verses 5 through 10. Psalm 115, verses 3 through 4. And Psalm 135, verses 5 and 6. The, the sailors, uh, they got the message, worshiping any God besides Jonah's God, Yahweh, the covenant God of the Hebrew people, is futile. This God, his, his power stretches from corner to corner of creation, from the heavens to the earth. Jonah's God does whatever he pleases. The second takeaway is, is simply this. Despite Jonah's poor witness before these, these folks, um, his running from God was not without spiritual fruit. In other words, Jonah, Jonah, I mean, he had a bad testimony throughout all of this. He had a bad, um, uh, he just didn't do anything that would have brought these sailors to a, a, a saving knowledge of God, yet God worked through it. And God sometimes does that, does that in our life. You ever just had a bad attitude or you sin in front of somebody that actually you were trying to a witness to or bring to faith, and God somehow works through your mess to bring that person to faith. I mean, I've seen that happen in my own life. Here's what Sinclair Ferguson says. Um, the, the, the community group leaders are reading a book. They're using a book called Man Overboard by Sinclair Ferguson as we walk through uh, Jonah in our community groups. And he says, this is a very clear illustration of the principle that the fruitfulness of our lives for God is not itself a guarantee of our closeness of our lives to his will. There are times in our lives when the Lord will employ us in his service despite our obedience to demonstrate that the grace, the fruit and the glory are entirely are entirely his. Uh, What's he say? God, in your decision and your indecision toward God, God is working to to bring back his purposes. God doesn't need you, but he uses you. And sometimes he uses you despite the sin in you. He did this in Jonah. I'll conclude with this. You know, ultimately, Jonah's actions with the sailors point us to Jesus. I mean, this this the story is all about Jonah, but in the same sense, it's about Jesus. It's pointing us to Jesus. Jonah is a picture of a scapegoat here. He's the sacrifice. 
that by being thrown overboard in the sea, Jonah saves some sailors. The sea calms down. The sailors don't drown. But this story in reality is is the precise animation of an infinitely, uh, infinitely vaster story. And that is that Jonah could not do for us what Jesus does do for us. First Timothy 1.15 says, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Paul goes on, goes on to say in, in chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. And so Jonah was thrown overboard, and he saves a bunch of sailors. But the, the truth is, I mean, Jonah didn't die for those sailors. The New Testament tells us, however, that Jesus accepts total condemnation. Jesus dies in our place for our sin on a cross. He dies, and God's res- God resurrects him to new life. And we are saved from an eternal storm, the wrath of God, only when we put our faith and our trust in him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, what an interesting story that a man would, um, who knows you would, um, would be so self-righteous that he would turn and go completely opposite of that thing that you would have him do. And the truth is, we do that all the time. We do that in our lives in, in various ways. Uh, because we want to make, we want to keep control of our life. We believe that you're there, but oftentimes we don't believe that you have our best interest at heart. And so, God, we repent. We see our lives in these sailors' lives as they search for spirituality in an, in an unspiritual way. We see our lives in Jonah, who is a picture of the church asleep. And God, would, by your Holy Spirit, would you just wake us up today? Would you wake us up to the world around us at work and as we recreate in our neighborhoods, those people in our families? And God, would you give us courage to just be ourselves, to be the person that you are making us and help us. Help us to be on mission with you. Help us to care. Help us to not necessarily say keen words that would save someone, but just to be a person that um, sees a person in, in need, that sees someone poor in spirit or emotion or in their spirituality, and that we would avail ourselves to be your instrument. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.